0: Welcome to the AWS Health Innovation Podcast, where you can learn from entrepreneurs and investors who are driving progress in healthcare and life science across the globe. My name is Joe Schunkweiler. I'm a physician and former health tech executive. And my name is Alex Merwin. I'm an operations executive who's worked at two startups that exited as unicorns. And now Joe and I work with healthcare and life science startups and investors at AWS. Today, I'm joined by Dr. David Park, co-founder and executive chairman of Verona Health. A company empowering physicians and life science companies with deeper data insights to accelerate medical research. Dr. Park and I discuss why certain medical specialties are perfect proving grounds for digital innovation, how Verana grew out of the unique data collected by the American Academy of Ophthalmology, and why they continue to work so closely with specialty societies, and why knowing not only what your customers value, but the nuance of that value is so important for startups. Enjoy. Dr. David Park, co-founder and executive chairman of Verana Health. Thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me. To start off, can you tell us a bit about Verana Health and what you all do? Verana Health is is
1: a little bit of an unusual company because it was originally born out of nonprofit medical societies, which is a little bit of an unusual gestation. But at its core, it utilizes large clinical data sets derived from electronic health records, and then analyzes this real-world healthcare information in a de-identified fashion, aggregates it, uses machine learning, natural language processing to really derive novel insights into clinical medicine. So what makes it interesting is it didn't start with trolling through claims data or prescribing information device sales or payer data, but with actual clinical information directly from EHRs, again in an anonymized and aggregated fashion, links us with other data sets, and is really committed to transforming healthcare by providing researchers, clinicians, organizations, life sciences companies with insights based on quality real-world data they might have difficulty getting otherwise and
0: how did you go from that early gestational stage that you talked about into a whole separate company out there raising money and spinning out and doing all the things you're doing now what was that spin out journey like
1: if you'll let me sort of give you a little bit of the early stages the american academy of ophthalmology which at one point i served as a ceo has a long commitment to using digital tools to try to accelerate and inform quality improvement processes. Now, ophthalmologists, as you know very well, Joe, every specialty has its its own culture. And ophthalmologists tend to be a little bit geeky uh, compared to some other specialties, very data-oriented. A lot of what we use, quite frankly, are what we call structured data elements. You know, visual acuity is a number. Uh, the pressure in the eye is a number. Uh, what your your visual fields look like are described by, by numbers. And so we are a field that lends itself nicely to numerically based validation of instruments we can use for quality improvement. So back in the mid-90s, the Academy said, well, gee, we now have these really interesting handheld devices like POM devices, let's see if we can get doctors to uh, input into them some of the key metrics of how their patients are doing, outcomes, processes of care, and then use that to inform the quality improvement process. Well, we were way ahead of the curve, spent millions of dollars on this and ultimately failed, but the, the goal was still there. So in 2009, um, as you know, Congress passed uh, what was known as the High Tech Act or the Health Information Technology for Economic and Clinical Health Act to promote the adoption and meaningful use of health information technology. And this really started to accelerate the transition from paper medical records to digital electronic health records or EHRs. And then as software was developed that allowed the extraction of information from these EHRs, that then led the American Academy of Ophthalmology and other medical organizations to say, hey, we have the opportunity now to, to extract and anonymize patient records, aggregate them, develop some novel insights we didn't have before. So we did this and it was Actually, quite interesting. We launched this in 2014. One year later, we had about one- third of the ophthalmologists in the United States using this, had wow. linked their HRs into it, which was a phenomenal adoption. There were some things that made it work. We made it free. We linked it to quality initiatives, uh, and it was really for our own internal purposes. And along the way, uh, it became obvious to us that as we heard from industry, it said, hey, can we have some of this data? And so we tested the commercial viability of it and determined like a lot of startups that we could either build it or we could partner with someone. And we decided to partner with someone, went through that process and ended up, Uh, Still, The Academy still owns this registry we call the Iris Registry, or Intelligent Research and Site, but has licensed the commercial use of it to a company that ultimately became Verona Health.
0: It seems to me that you were already realizing some of that opportunity that everyone was seeing, policymakers, technologists, et cetera in the electronic health record. As you made that transition from paper to digital, people were saying one of the advantages it it will be that you can mine this data, that you can run machine learning models, et cetera. But all that was really abstract at the time, having lived through, suffered through, I should say, some of that transition over my career. You must have felt like we are pulling the future forward a bit and we're actually using that in the way it was intended way ahead of schedule. Did it Did it feel like that in those early days?
1: Oh, I really had that feeling, Joe. I mean, I remember the, I was CEO at the time we had our board meetings and we had to say, we have no idea if this is going to work. It's going to cost millions of dollars to do. Like all membership organizations, we don't have a lot of extra cash hanging around, but our board unanimously voted that this was important to do because ultimately It had the potential to advance science, to inform health policy, and to really transform care for patients and for the physicians who are our members. So this was really smack dab in the center of our mission. And we did a couple of things that, in retrospect, I think were really key. First of all, we said, we're going to do it. We're not going to take any federal money. We're not going to take any industry money. And that way we control it and we're keeping it for our purposes and our principles.
0: And as we evolve it, we're going to be the ones that make the decisions. Do you think that made it easier to actually do the spin out that you didn't feel like you were hooked into one particular life science entity or had a large non-dilutive grant on board or something like that? It seemed like a cleaner process than as you said, Hey, Other folks are going to want this or want this now. There's a pull for this from the market as a whole, and we can actually spin this out into its own entity.
1: Absolutely. Made the process easier. It it made it a little more complex and we didn't have a lot of the assets that some of these partners might have. But we were able to do it consistent with our own principles and objectives, which gave it a certain... We were being very deliberate about it, doing very careful due diligence, but it was our decision. And we've never regretted ultimately spinning this into the for-profit commercial sector.
0: David, what about your own background? How did how did you become the, the steward of this major undertaking that you're describing?
1: Like most physicians, I didn't wake up at age 14 and say, hey, I'm going to be an ophthalmologist. Although- my father was a physician. I wanted to go into public policy and a congressional intern, worked for the State Department, did stuff in the health policy arena, stayed in academia, got my my MD from Baylor College of Medicine in Houston, then six years of residency and fellowship. And then I moved to teaching. I was a residency program director and then got involved in quality care initiatives and at a fairly young age, became an apartment chair. And in a very entrepreneurial setting, we developed statewide companies to handle risk for for care and learned a lot through that process. And then after serving as president of the Academy in 2008, they asked me to become as full-time CEO, which I did for 13 years. and. It was a fascinating experience because we had 32,000 members globally, and it had an opportunity to try to do what you felt was important, not just in education, but in quality of care, advocacy, communications, et cetera. And when I retired in 2018, having then served on the board of Verona Hill, which again emerged from this clinical data registry, they asked me to transition to becoming its executive chairman. So that's
0: my trajectory, if you will. I'm fortunate to have many former and current clinicians on this show. And the arc is always interesting. I always say to people, if you had told me when I graduated from medical school in 2008, that I would be working for Amazon on the tech side of the house at Amazon Web Services. I would have first said, "What are web services?" And then I would have, and then I would have said, "You're crazy. There's no way that's going to happen." So it's a really is an interesting pathway, I think, for for clinical folks in this world.
1: Yeah, I agree, and I think you'd probably agree also that one of the the fantastic things you have an opportunity to do is to acquire new mentors and and role models along the way. And and as we went through the process of deciding how are we going to commercialize this clinical data registry, I had the great good fortune to interview people, talk to people in a number of potential partner organizations and end up with a group of investors and like-minded people, non-physicians who have while very, very committed to commercial success and business success, have also helped us to stay true to the original principles that led to the founding of the Iris Registry. So they were committed to the concept of transforming healthcare as well as being successful in a business environment.
0: One of the most interesting things about what you pulled together at Verana. Are the number of different stakeholders and customers or potential customers that you've pulled in as a, with access to this data and the insights that you provide? You rattled off some of those customers before, but who do you who are you selling to now? What does those profiles look like, and what are some of the use cases that you're finding most relevant? Our primary
1: sort of uh, customer base appeal the life science companies, both device pharmaceutical companies. But at the same time, considering that our core asset, our data, the other customer base are the physicians, the providers that actually provide us with this stream of data. So we have front end customers who are the providers, making sure we deliver value to them and to the, the objectives they hold dear. And then at the end of the process to the commercial customers, now we at this time have four of the five largest pharmaceutical companies and many, many others as customers. And we also have what I like to think of as indirect customers because, and I'll give you a classic example, that's the, the FDA, because if we can provide analytics that help companies bring better applications to the FDA for approvals, for label expansions, for post-market surveillance, it works for the physicians, it works for the patients, it obviously works for the companies, but it also works for the FDA. And they're not the only one, but they're an example of what I like to think of as indirect customers.
0: So it doesn't seem like the approach you have really varies. The underlying asset is still the same. It may be a different wrapper or a different way to to share it with one of these groups. But given the range of folks that you serve, if you're selling to providers versus life science versus let's say payers, I'm sure there's payers in the mix who are leveraging the data. Does it look any different? Like how different is it for each of those different groups that may tap into this?
1: It can actually be very, very different. And I'll give you a couple of, of examples. We have right now almost a half a billion patient visits in our database, which includes not only ophthalmology, but neurology and urology. We actually have three separate clinical registries. Together are 75 to 80 million unique patients. So it's a huge subset of the American population. And we've got nine years of, of longitudinal data from over 60 different electronic health records. So we're, we are very much Switzerland as far as that is concerned. As you know, the EHR environment is still very fragmented, which creates a lot of technical problems, but it also gives us a lot of power. What's also interesting is that we not only take the EHR data, but we then link it to claims data. We link it to image data. We link it to patient-reported outcomes tools. And so we've got this wonderful, rich smorgasbord of data, which has at its core clinical information, but also has the patient perspective and the patient journey, pharmaceutical information, prescribing information, claims information, which makes, it, makes the analytics much, much more powerful. So that, for example, we had a, one company that was, wanted to start a trial for a patient population with a very rare disease. And it required using unstructured data, which meant that you had to go into, you know, clinical records uh, that were narrated and extract from them uh, specific pieces of information using artificial intelligence. And so we were able to help this company for a very rare disease that had never been studied before, find the sites, help enroll investigators, and help them launch a study on time. Wow. Uh, you know, for another for another company that was looking for a label expansion, we were able to go in and find uh, retrospectively how the drug had been used in an off-label fashion, and really not simply the numbers of how many times it was used, but what, were, what was really the outcome of the process, and... We can go to other companies that are looking to say, gee, we've just launched a device. We need to find a way post-approval to monitor if there are any adverse impacts. Mm. Again, we can do that using real-world data and help them through that analytic process. Those are some of the things that, uh, that we can look at from all different parts of the life cycle of drugs, devices.
0: What's the most Sought after additional data for you all? Is it additional registries? Is it additional sources to plug in to the existing pool that you have from the registries that you have? When you're sitting around thinking, Oh, I wish we had x, what is x? What's the pie in the sky vision for additional data inputs?
1: You know we're still trying to work our way through that, Joe. it's a it's really a core question. It's sort of how do you build mm-hmm. this and I think one of the things that we have learned, and I think every company learns at some point is, you know, you can't outrun your bandwidth. Right. And so it's, it's critical to make sure that you're delivering the core value. And when you're taught, when data are your value, it has to be valid. You know, it has to have been curated properly. And so you, there is a certain pace you have to go through. Uh, And so, yes, Uh, could we go into other specialties? Possibly. Are there other data sets that we'd love to have in the future? Quite frankly, giving you a specific example, we know we're gonna have genetic information. And as you know, the the cost of doing whole sequencing is coming down at companies, research shops. A lot of places are amassing big data sets in this regard. We've been approached about it. We know we'll get there. But right now, images are something which sound very simple but are fantastically complex because not all of the the image acquisition tools are what we call DICOM compatible. You have to be able to build the machine learning tools to so that you can the analytic process. And we are moving forward uh, in a lot of different areas. And so one of the issues is sequencing this. Uh, and we're taking a lot, of, a lot of our time right now on data curation, data analytics, and images, knowing, as you pointed out, that
0: in the future, we'll be expanding. It sounds like from what you've laid out there, that the value has really been in depth And delivering value in granular detail on the data that you have for the customers that you have. So life science devices, it's not just you have access to all these things. We can run the models, but what we're surfacing for you is in great detail and granularity, and you can answer really specific tough to get at questions. Is that right? It is, Joe.
1: And I think it kind of gets into, well, there's a lot of companies in the the healthcare data space um, what makes you different, and you know what 's your secret sauce and I think for us a major element of that secret sauce is in fact our genesis in that we 're linked to large medical societies that themselves have tremendous human resources, and so we 're not just throwing data out there we 're throwing data back by a large group of MDs, PhDs, data scientists that have come out of healthcare. So we find ourselves, for instance, occasionally working with a company that is looking for our help in launching, let's say, a, a phase two clinical trial. And instead of saying, okay, great, here's the information you want. Let's see how we can deliver it to you. One of the things that that we really enjoy doing because I think it serves the customer as well as us is saying, let's take a look at your trial. Are there ways to fine tune the nuance of this trial to say, well, you're looking for this and you're using this data point as the proxy for it. We have one that may work better and that we'll be able to get in a much more reliable fashion. And so it's really working with the companies in a very collaborative fashion based not just on having petabytes and petabytes of data, but saying we also have domain expertise.
0: That must be a really powerful discussion in terms of sales, like to say you're really delivering value above and beyond what the initial high value interaction was meant to be. That must be a real aha moment for your customers when you're able to do that on the trial level.
1: I I know it is for some, and I hope it is for all of them, (laughs) but I... But it's also fun, you know, as a physician, because you're going in there, and your ultimate goal is to advance science. I mean, one of the things that I'm particularly proud of is the work we're doing at Verona has led to now about 150 peer-reviewed publications mm. and invited presentations in the medical literature. I mean, that to me is is saying, "Aha!" Uh-huh. the the scientists, the clinician scientists, are saying what you're doing has Not only value, it has validity.
0: Take me back to those early stages as you were growing out your team at Verana. Knowing what you knew, you had this DNA of intensive focus on the data that matters to providers that you were collecting through your organization. What did you hire for? Like, what did you go out and find to to finish off and complement that skill set that you had in house initially?
1: We're looking for. Lots of different skill sets. One of the things about this, as you can imagine, it's not, you know, like a life science company that develops a molecule and you've got a pathway. We're doing something that's never been done before at scale. I mean, there are companies that are working with employed physicians in a single specialty with one EHR. That's difficult. I don't don't trivialize that. But now say we're working in multiple specialties with people you don't employ, with multiple different electronic health platforms, with multiple different types of devices, inputting images, trying to link all that, anonymize it, and validate it. So we need data scientists. We need clinician domain experts. We need PhDs in AI. We need experts in cybersecurity. We need, and at the end of this, you obviously need the commercial expertise, but at the top of the pyramid, you really need an executive team that understands the the complexity of the process and the need for all of these to work together towards a common goal. And working with a board that's composed of investors, It's composed of representatives of the major medical societies and even of the customer base. And so it's one of the things that I am particularly thrilled with is the board. I've worked with, as I'm sure you have, Joe, a number of different boards, nonprofit and for-profit in my career. The folks on our board are just awesome. Uh, And... uh, uh, they understand that we're, we are a hybrid. We're a very focused for-profit commercial enterprise that emerged from and still has links to a nonprofit base. And how do you handle that culturally, as well as then execute against your corporate objectives? Um, it's, it's very challenging, but it's a lot of fun.
0: Dr. Park, as we close out here, I like to leave our listeners with some advice from your extensive experience. Specifically, when you think about spinning out this entity, and there must be others in academia, in the nonprofit space, what have you, that are building something now and they're thinking, I just don't want to burn a bridge. Like I don't want to do something that prevents me and my organization from being able to do a version of what you've done. What advice do you have for them? What should they be thinking about as they as they evaluate the potential for spin out for some of these great ideas that are happening all over the world in places you may not think of as startup centers?
1: It's a great question. And I think it's really the answer is not that different in this environment for almost any startup, which is basically you've got to figure out first, what do you have that has great value? It's nice if it uh, has traditionally been difficult to do in a cost-effective fashion. And you have to understand the nuance of the value. And I'll give you an example in, from the medical world uh, to, that you can translate. There's, there was a great study done at one point uh, as to what do patients who have lung problems, who have breathing problems, want out of a product, a device or a drug. And they asked a bunch of doctors, And the doctors came up with great answers. You know, they wanna be able to go up a flight of stairs. They wanna be able to walk a block without getting short of breath. And then they asked patients and the patients came up with an answer that doctors never thought of, which is we just wanna be able to get a good night's sleep. And so it comes down to knowing what your customers value and what are the nuances of the value. And then if you can do this, finding a way, whether it's technology or specific human resources to do it faster, better. Uh, You can convert something which was time consuming, resource intensive into a more automated process. And then uh, it's partnering with the organizations to create win-win situations. And I think this is, what we did was an example of this. Again, you've got different cultures, for-profits, non-profits, scientific-based, commercial-based, all coming together. Uh, didn't happen easily, but work through it. Uh, and then have this lives and documents that you can come back to and refer to and guide you as you have the problems uh, that all startup companies ultimately will encounter. And- as you go through this, you then better understand, what am I looking for in C-suite? What am I looking for in, a, in uh, not just the, the CEO, but what am I looking for in the operating officer, even in finance and, and general counsels? And that ultimately then reinforces this culture and uh, allows you to move forward and hopefully not losing sight of what you started with uh, at the beginning.
0: Dr. David Park, co-founder and executive chairman of Verana Health, thanks for joining me today.
1: Thank you very much, Joe. I've enjoyed it.
0: If you enjoyed the podcast, please leave us a review and rating. It helps others find us. To learn more about how AWS supports startups, please go to aws.amazon.com slash startups.